This week we got a good one. He is a three-time Bassmaster winner, a six-time Classic qualifier, all the way from Paducah, Kentucky. Mark Menendez on... I'm Bob Cobb from the Bassmaster. Welcome to Mercer. Happy Wednesday and welcome back to the Awkwardly Honest Fishing Podcast that is my last name, Mercer. Welcome to Mercer and happy hump day to you all. Hope you're having a great week. In like 10 days, it's Christmas. Uh, not to make you panic or anything, I have two gifts bought so far for my wife. Uh, one of them I'm pretty sure will not arrive. And uh, the other one I gave away to somebody already. Uh, so, so, so they could give my wife a gift. So uh, I'm in big trouble, but I mean, I will give her the gift that keeps on giving, which is me <laughs> every day. Um, just think, count yourself lucky. You only have to listen to me once a week. She has to listen to me uh, often. But um, fun podcast this week, guys. Mark Menendez is not just a great angler, but he's one of my favorite guys on the Bassmaster Elite Series. Um, you know, he's a guy I grew up watching on TV. I remember watching him and Chuck Economo battle it out uh, with giant smallmouth. And obviously that's why it stood out to me. You know, there wasn't a lot of smallmouth tournaments back then. And... Uh, Mark Menendez is one of those few people that you grow up watching on TV or you, you know, you, you want to meet one day. And there's a lot of people you meet and they're not what you expected. Mark Menendez is that and more. Um, and it seems like the more I know him, the more I love him. Uh, he is just a good person. I mean, aside from all the cool fishing stuff and everything, I mean, he's a good person. He uh, tirelessly fights for the resource. And he's made an incredible living from this sport. And uh, But above all of that, he's a good person. He's a really, really good person. And now that makes me sound like I'm saying the other people we've had on this podcast aren't good people. Uh, they are. But Mark is just a, I mean, he's just one of those people. I'll tell you what, when I hang out with Mark, I walk away feeling like I should try to be a better person. And, and, and I think you will too, because, well, rather than talk about it, let's bring him in right now. Mark Menendez, first of all, thank you for doing this. And uh, with the weather forecast that we've all seen, the, the decimation, literally, like like destruction that has happened down there, I have to ask you, obviously, from Paducah, Kentucky, you're pretty close to it. How was it, and how's everyone doing? Well, it, I do have a bird's eye view, Dave. Thank you for having me. Um, I am 25 miles from ground zero in Mayfield, Kentucky. Uh, Mayfield seems to be getting a lot of the press because it rolled right through the court square and has basically flattened everything. Loss of life, loss of property, but some amazing stories evolving from this disaster. Um, Kentuckians, excuse me, Dave, Kentuckians in the Commonwealth are good people. And mm -hmm. we are seeing the goodness of people at a time in which society we've not seen some nice things happen from other people, but right now generosity and kindness is pouring into our area. Um, this thing uh, roared through over 150 to 180 miles of Kentucky alone Add another 50 to 60 miles on that. So it was on the ground for a while. Um, and EF4 to EF5 monster Hurricane tornado just 
the conditions were perfect. And uh, our newscasters here locally had been talking about the events that were coming Wednesday night, Thursday night, and Friday to get people prepared. And without a doubt, that certainly uh, saved a lot of lives. So, I mean, to me, this always, whenever I see stuff like this, it just feels so so foreign to me. You know, you know what I mean? Because literally, uh, we shovel our way out of storms. But to see the, how brutal. I mean, uh, the first time I ever really saw it was in Arkansas when Mayflower got hit with that big tornado. And when you actually, I was there, I think, a week after. And when you actually just see the path that they take, it, it is... It's crazy destructive and, and it, it almost looks fake. Like to, to, for, for somebody who's not used to seeing it, it looks, in Northern terms, it's a clear cut. <laughs> you know, a man-made exactly. clear cut that, that runs right through there. Um, how can people do, what can people do to help? Well, Dave, let's harness our bass fishing friends. And there are multiple websites here in Kentucky, state-run websites in which donations can be made. Uh, Wade White in Lyon County, who is the head of War on Carp, Wade is the uh, county judge executive. He is asking for people to send gift cards and food. The amount of um, things, clothes and lights and, and whatever, they have a lot of that. That is that's the first thing people donate. But uh, from a distance, if you could if you could spare five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars, whatever you can spare. Uh, will make a difference in someone's life. And with uh, the state of Kentucky, checks and or money can be sent to the state treasurer's office. And it will be, as long as it's earmarked tornado relief fund, it will go directly to help what is needed in so many of these counties. I mean, it, Dave, it's not just my county and the next county over. It's uh, 15 to 18 counties in which this thing just went right along, just tearing things up. And and you're right, the clear-cut effect is really crazy. Most of the trees are snapped off about 15 feet from the ground. It's amazing to see. And what the stories that are going to evolve out of this is how arbitrary a tornado can be. It can be 20 feet to the right of a house, and the house is unscathed. But yet, 20 feet from the left, it's total obliteration. One of my fishing buddies up around Dawson Springs, his daughter's house, it is nothing but the slate, the the the, the concrete slab. It's it, it looks like it's been swept off and cleaned up and the, the slab is gone. Everything in that house that was in that house, beams, roof, windows, everything is gone. There is a slab there and they parked their car back on top of it to show where their home was. Uh, it's amazing the loss, uh, but we're very fortunate that the loss of life wasn't greater than it actually has been. We're, we're grateful for that here. And if you just think about that, and I, and I really want everyone to think about this right now, just think about the time of year it is. I mean, not, I mean, it seems trivial, but just think of everything you have in your house. Every person listening to this right now, all those gifts and things you have hidden that you can't wait all of that is gone. I mean, and the gifts seem trivial. I mean, as long as everybody's safe, like you said, but everybody needs to get together and do what they can for this. So I will make sure to put some links in, in this so people know where to go and donate. And I'm going to do something right now. Uh, I hadn't planned this, but I'll tell you what, for every share this gets, 
up to a thousand shares, I'll give a dollar for each share that this that this podcast gets. So, uh, so let let's raise some money. It cost me some money because uh, it's a, it's a worthwhile it's a worthwhile cause. And man, it, it it shows you what life's all about. I mean, really, just like that. And uh, it is. It, it's it's in a moment. And I thank you, Dave. You always come through. You always help people. Um, in whatever dire straits they're in. And that's the, that's the thing about fishermen. And I don't tend to go and get out here on a religious thing, but maybe that's why Jesus had some fishermen that he hung around a lot as disciples. Uh, we fishermen tend to bind together, bond together on whatever topic it is, whether it's helping people, whether it's helping the resource, whatever it is, we tend, we tend to help. And um, that just makes me proud to be a fisherman. Yeah, I, I think you're right about anglers. I mean, they're good, but I also think there's a reason for that. You hear people say that about people, and you start to think, I start to think myself, well, we just say it because it's our community. You know what I mean? I'm sure, sure the stock car racers are like, you know, stock car racers, <laughs> every community's. But I don't think that's the truth because I think the difference in our sport is, I don't know about you, but none of us ever got into this to get rich. You got into this because you just wanted to fish. You just to figure out a way to stay a child the rest of your life and be able to do what we did. And and I think that's that's one of the reasons that so many good people fish. I mean, to me, like I mean, you know, other sports. If you're good at football, by the time you're 12 years old, it's already turned into a a business. You know what I mean? Sure. People are telling you about your future. In our line of work, until the last few years, if you told people you wanted to fish for a living, they just laugh at you. Oh, I've been laughed at a lot <laughs> my entire life, and and when I make that cast and I feel that tick, that's the thing that makes it doesn't matter if the fish is this long or he's this long. It's the fact that I made that fish do something that he doesn't want to do or didn't know he was doing. That's the whole thing that drives all of us in fishing. And it doesn't matter whether it's a walleye, a perch, a big muskie, a big pike, or a largemouth, smallmouth, or a spotted bass. It's the fact that we tricked that fish into doing that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we are a close-knit group. We, you know, the the 94 brothers that I have on the Elite Series Tour, we fight, we bitch, we moan, we yell at each other. But at the end of the day, we'll go have a beer, and 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 it's all good at the end of competition because we're part of that tight knit group and, and we're all anglers and um, it's just uh, it's just a unique place. And you're right. We didn't get into it to make tons of money, um, but um, been very fortunate to do it for a long time and, and proud to be part of this group. There's no doubt about it. You've had an incredible career and are still having an incredible career. But let me ask you, do, do you think you were meant to do this or do you think this is just something you wanted to do? No, no, Dave. I uh, I have pictures. Uh, my mother has the pictures of me in a diaper hovering over a minnow bucket with a stick and a string and no hook trying to catch minnows out of the bucket when I was 18 months old. Um, I, 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 there's, there was no choice. There was no choice. And when um, the fire got started about eight or nine years old, um, as far as bass fishing, I always fished my entire life. I uh, had a next door neighbor named Clyde Watts and uh, 
Clyde was my mentor from the time I was 10 to 14. Clyde just recently passed away at 95 years old. Um, He had a wonderful life and a wonderful human being, but he ignited that fire and he spent four years with me every Saturday and every Sunday teaching me how to fish. And that has lasted my life and I'm still, still involved in the game and will always be a fisherman. It's, it, I think about it every moment of every day. Um, you know, my wife, Melissa, and I were having a discussion this morning, and she says, you know, that this you've got to grow up. You've got <laughs> to grow up and think differently about a few things. And I'm like, it's an impossibility. This is how I'm geared. This is how I think. And it's all about making a technique better or doing something different to get that bite, it's all I think about, Dave. And I've been, that's just the way it's been the entire 57 years. And I get that because I feel like I'm the same. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like all of us, when we have conversations like this, we're all like, I hear that story about you in front of a bucket. And I think about, you know, stories my family's told me about me. And, and, and it's not even just what we do. The one thing I think we all understand is what we feel. I know that feeling that you feel where you're just like, this is home. This is when that boat leaves the trailer. And that's to me, other than with my family, that is the most comfortable spot on earth that I could ever be. I love the Bassmaster stage, but that's the spot that really is me. And I think that's true for you. It is. It, it absolutely is. And, and when I get there, um, it's a freedom that I can't find when my feet are on dry land. Don't get me wrong. I'm in a great place in life now. Yeah. Uh, a, a huge family, lots of kids. Went to Christmas music last night from our nine-year-old uh, at his school, his little small school he goes to. And so those are all cool places. Went to dinner with the family last night. And and, and that's total chaos because there's so darn many of us. Um, <laughs> I have seven children now. And uh, so there's nine of us that get together on a daily, daily voyage that makes life so interesting. But when I step my foot into that bass boat. I crank that Yamaha and I move and I go, it did. It, it just goes, here we go. And that spot is where I was meant to be. And, uh, um, I, I'm itching now, Dave, because, uh, I'm going to take, uh, one of my good friends tomorrow. I've been catching smallmouth, um, for the last two or three weeks here in Kentucky, not giants like by the standards that you have at Simcoe and up on the St. Lawrence river. See, I know about Simcoe. I know about these things. You've never invited me up there. You're welcome anytime. I mean, oh, that's good. Not it's tomorrow. easy to cross our cold. border nowadays. But uh, <laughs> we're really, it, Kentucky Lake is doing well, Dave. Um, and the smallmouth are really gaining a foothold because our largemouth numbers have fallen some and they have really responded well. I caught seven different um, year classes of fish the other day, anything from little bitty ones to up to four and a half pounds. And it's good to see that that my lake, Kentucky Lake, is not dead and it's coming back. We're still fighting the carp like crazy, but uh, bass fishing and crappie fishing is getting really good again. Give me a, a quick update on the carp because everybody, I mean, you have become synonymous with carp. I mean, who knew? Who knew that? You I mean, you've, you've caught how many bass in your life and now you've become synonymous with carp. But give me the good news that it has been happening, pointing in the right direction. Well, I have been fishing below Kentucky Dam. I've been fishing above Kentucky Dam. And it's a tale of two cities. You know, below the dam, we've had limited commercial fishing going on for them. And there's 
billions and billions of these darn things down there and they look like potato chips, Dave. They, they don't look like us. They're not robust. They're thin. Their quality of life is not that good because of the numbers. The bass down there look great. Uh, on the Kentucky Lake, the last couple of times I've been up there, I'm not seeing the numbers of fish in these gigantic schools that, um, that you see. Uh, we've got some current rolling through the lake, and that tends to push those carp out of the main lake and onto the, the mouths of the points, the mouths of the bays, and then you go in there and you see blankets of them. There's still big schools of them, but I'm just not seeing as many of those as what I have in the past, which is I'm grateful for. I had a conversation the other day with a commercial fisherman that was actually fishing a little while just to get his head straight. He, the commercial fisherman loved to bass fish too. And um, he says, it, it's pretty easy to go and target these schools. And we're developing new techniques that are so effective at harvesting the carp that we're getting minimal minimal sport fish bycast. We have a new technique that's basically called trapping, trap netting. Okay. And um, been the uh, one angler here has been working with the state of Kentucky, the Fish and Wildlife Department, and uh, they went out and in, I don't know, Dave, like a couple of hours, they trap netted um, like 35,000 pounds. They got wow. one, one channel catfish and uh, one red-eared sunfish, and that's the only two other fish they caught wow. other than Asian carp. So the efficiency is good. We tried um, politically to bring in and do some things with this unified modified method that has been very popular in Asia um, to, to harvest these fish. And it just doesn't work well in reservoirs day because the bottom of a reservoir has got road beds. It's got laydowns. It's got stumps. It's got rocks. And you can't net the bottom as easily. Gotcha. So now these guys are working on different ways and this trap netting is uh, doggone it's efficient. So I think we can get some big numbers with that. It's one of the things I respect most about you. And I think a lot of anglers do, and it's that care to, to, to make the resource better. Is that been always, or was that developed over time from making a living from wildlife? It, it definitely has developed over time. When I was in my 20s, I was really working so hard to establish a Bassmaster's career. But as I've gotten older and as I've gotten more grateful and thankful to the waters for allowing me to make a living this whole time, I feel an innate, innate responsibility to try to make my waterways and our national waterways, these national treasures, a better place. Um, and if I can do something like that, um, like I've been able to get involved in and try to make some kind of difference, then I'm coming full circle as, as a human being, you know, Kentucky Dave has the most miles of navigable water in the lower 48 States of the United States. Not many oh, wow. people know that. So in my state alone, it's inundated with these darn things, damn things, let me say. Um, so I've got a lot more work to do here than some of the other states. So that's the reason I jumped. I didn't do it for more exposure, any kind of credibility. I do have a degree in fisheries biology. So that gives me a leg up when I go sit yeah. in a senator's uh, office or the Department of Fish and Wildlife's um, number one person. Um, that gives me a little more av availability to speak the language in technical terms. Um, so I'm glad I have that ability and I'm, and I'm glad to take the fight forward. Yamaha has stepped forward in conservancy 
with their group called Right Waters. That yep. is Ramaha's conservancy group, their advocacy group. So everything I do is through Yamaha Rightwaters. And I and I and I express everyone to go and see what Yamaha is doing. The snapper issue down in um in the in the Gulf down there, Yamaha got involved in that and helped get limits so that you and I could take our families and go snapper fishing and catch a few fish for for dinner. Um, they're very, very active with CCA in restoration of coastal lines, making more areas for 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 partnerships with Ducks and uh, Ducks yeah. Unlimited, CCA, making the coastal waters better. And now they jumped on board with me with the invasive issues. So uh, it's really cool to work for someone that gives back to the industry. Um, I also brought AFCO in with, uh, with Right Waters and AFCO has donated monies here in the Western Kentucky area with um, Judge Wade White and the War on Carp to give monies, they gave a $10,000 stipend, which gave a subsidy to the commercial fishermen, which equated to another quarter million pounds of Asian carp that got taken out of our waters and that subsidy went to pay those fishermen for that. So that's cool to work with groups within our own industry that are trying to make a difference. It's it's amazing, and, and, and you're right. When you work with, I mean, I think every single company that does anything with the outdoors should be doing the the exact same thing. Like just you look at the difference that just a few companies getting involved make if they were all involved, it's unbelievable. And one of the things I'm most thankful for you, because it's honestly like I could talk in front of any, I don't think there's a crowd that I'd be fearful to talk in front of except for one politicians. I, I, I get nervous because there's a lot of people around them that make sure they say the, that you say the right things and all sorts of things. And I'm just, you know me, you're better to speak to those people. But you have been to D.C. several times and fought for us and now recently got named to the Aquatic Invasive Committee. What, what does that mean? And does that mean you got to wear a suit? Well, I don't know. When I, when I went to D.C. in front of all of these uh, these senators. I've been in front of about 60% of our senators and house members. Um, I wore my Bassmaster Elite Series jersey. I did cool. not wear a suit. Um, I think it had more impact, Dave. I was kind of, this was the idea from uh, Wright Waters at Yamaha. Um, it did have more impact with with what I do. I looked, you know, I looked like a NASCAR guy walking through there yeah. and it really got a lot of their attention. What's unique, Dave, with our lawmakers in the United States, a lot of them are outdoorsmen. They love to hunt. They love to fish. Um, so when I when I go and speak to them, it's not a hard translation. There yeah. are some that are more urban oriented and and don't have as much experience, but they're willing to listen. Um, once you start talking, how the economics that we lost in my area because of the invasive carp. It was a million dollars a county around Kentucky and Barkley Lakes. And there's 12 counties. Wow. $12 million a month was being lost. Businesses went out of business, tackle shops, gas stations, restaurants, motels. When you start losing those types of businesses, the flow and the economics of your area go, go down so quickly. So I can talk to those people in those terms. And that really gets their darn attention when you talk about that much of a loss, but the aquatic, the aquatic invasive committee, we are going to be working on uh, what's called a white paper in that we're going to be working with um, the nomenclature of how to translate 
the language into law. We're not going to write the law, but it is the terms that need to be put in place. And we're going to be working on some of that so that when our, our lawmakers get to that point, the law has to be written clearly and effectively um, so that we can get the most benefit from what we're trying to accomplish, which is to try to eliminate or eradicate if possible. But I don't think that's going to happen with the Asian carp. So let's let's quote unquote neuter them and let's diminish their impact. Asian carp's not the only problem. We have over 181 invasives that are wow. causing issues here in the country, both terrestrial and aquatic. So it's not just the Asian carp itself. Everybody knows what a zebra mussel is. They still cause problems. The coagulum mussel out West are causing problems out there. So you do have things like that, but kudzu, that's, that's an aquatic or a, or a terrestrial plant that goes and takes over and kills trees and, and is hard to deal with. Um, multiple other species that I even, I'm not even familiar with the 181. So we've got lots of problems um, that we've got to work on. So we're going to move forward with it. That's for sure. At any point, does this stuff pull you away f- from fishing? I, I mean, does that, or do you, or do you just do a good job of balancing them both? Dave, I don't do a good job at anything. As far as balancing those. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a train wreck when it comes like that, but no, at, uh, during practice, um, I will come in, open my computer, check emails, and I'm and I may have some contacts to make during official practice. Uh, the aquatic invasive committee is going to work with me, and we're going to try to work in between um, events because they know how important that is for me. So, um, but no, it's it's ongoing. Um, I'll get a text from Judge White in the middle of the damn night sometimes, or first thing in the morning, and um, you know, it, it when duty calls, you just get up and go do it. And uh, this is one that we that I'm that I'm very. Uh, um, glad to see. And, you know, I spoke to our elite brothers the other day about advocacy. Um, it doesn't take much as an angler to work on conservancy and advocacy. I'm not talking politically. I'm just talking, park your boat on the bank for 30 minutes, take two garbage bags with you and just pick up trash off the bank. Um, I, I, I see this out of some of our elite anglers. The Jockamsons have done that. Yeah. Um, Lowen, Canterbury, Matt Heron, they've all done that. Um, there's a guy I follow on Instagram, an avid fisherman in, in West Virginia. He, he, he videos most of his fish catches over there. And then he, he always goes out and takes two five-gallon buckets and fills it up with trash on the little lakes that he fishes. That's advocacy. That's making the fishery better. So I, I encourage and implore everybody to take a few minutes out of your time. It's only, you know, 15 minutes, you're only going to make 40 casts, maybe not even that many, depending upon what you're fishing. Take 15 minutes a day, a bag with you, get that trash out of your lake, dump it in a, a trash can that will be taken care of, and you are working on conservancy and advocacy. I, I implore everyone to do that. It's easy. Yeah, leave, leave the place better than you found it. And that is a term I've heard you say a few times about professional angling. I've heard you a few times say, I, I want to leave this sport better than I found it. Explain that to me. And, and how do you think that's going? Well, you know, in the United States, we have 60 million anglers that buy fishing licenses. And during COVID, 
we we've seen that number go up. It has dropped a little bit. And now it's yeah. on its way back up. So um, there's more of us using the space in which we have, we have limited space. Um, outside influences affect that people that don't take care of the environment and leave trash and whatever. So I think we're making, making an, you know, you've got the river keepers, the Mississippi river keepers, the Coosa river keepers, Coosa river, river keepers, the Ohio river keepers. We've got people that are working at this and making a lifelong journey, doing some of this and making a better place. You know, we can't keep treating our planet, our lands, our waters as a trash dump at some point, it builds up and it just spills over. So if a few of us just take a few minutes, we can make an impact on those that aren't aware of what they're doing um, and, and make it better. So um, I do want to make it better. I do, you know, as a young person, this is all I ever dreamed of doing with high school and college fishing coming along. We've got more kids that are more, you know, I hate these kids, Dave. <laughs> they're such that was my next question <laughs> they come they come into the sport you know right now i think 30 to 35 percent of all the elite anglers are former college anglers there's I, I don't hate them dave i don't mean that they but come in me a little bit technical anglers drew cook i'd like to slap him around every now and then patrick walters i'm gonna i'm gonna buy him some longer shorts because i'm tired <laughs> of seeing those long legs they're such great anglers and um, with more people coming into the sport, young as they are, means they're going to get a longer lifespan in competitive fishing. And it's exciting to see. Uh, I, I give them all a hard time. They call me the old man. They call me Santa Claus, whatever. But what has been so great about their introduction into my league and the sport is in 19, when they came in, if I was doing well in a tournament and I was going down the right-hand bank, of an area and they wanted to come in that area, they'd go, Hey, Mark, or Hey, Mr. Menendez. Some of them would say, <laughs> are you utilizing that left-hand side? And may I go over there? Or a couple of anglers pulled up and said, Hey, I want to go way past you. And I'd be in a kind of a tight area. Do you mind if I go back there? I will trolling motor a hundred yards before I start my big motor and go. So we've gotten to be a tighter group of anglers. We've gotten, you know, Anglers are a fiery bunch and sometimes miscommunication. We have a few little misfires and we've seen that on the elite series. Not going to mention any names, Matt Heron. I love you, but um, anyway, it's gotten better and it's gotten more enjoyable for me to be out there with these kids because they're fantastic anglers. But the one thing I will say, 99.9% .9 of them are fantastic people. Going into that season in 19, well, you know, with the big change, what was what did you think you know this new group of anglers what what was your mindset and has it changed at all you know over the last number of years getting to know them all i i, I would imagine it has just simply because your last statement well it, it, it hasn't changed it's only gotten better yeah we've added new kids that have come through the high school and college ranks and they're all they're all carbon copies they're good guys that care about the resource, they care about professional fishing, uh, and they're the, here to make their mark in fishing, just like I was when I was a 26-year-old. I wanted to make my mark in fishing. Um, the 19th season was one of my favorites, and I made this statement to you one time. 
other than the two thousand or the nineteen ninety one ninety two invitational season, it marks the same. That was my first year, ninety one ninety two. I made the top one hundred at that time, the first year. But the nineteen season was a was a rebirth. It was a rebeginning, and it really uh, fueled me as a person, as an angler, because it was going to be all new. We had lots of new faces. We had lots of new kids. It was an uncertain time. Um, but I felt ultimately uh, calm about it. I knew the fishing would go off without a hitch. I knew the organization's infrastructure with their media production, with Bassmaster Magazine, with Bass Times, with all of the television, with JM. We had that infrastructure there. None of that changed. Yeah. The names and the faces changed and it was just fishing. The fishing yeah. didn't change. So all of that just rolled into one, gave us a lot of momentum and uh, we're building and growing and um, making the sport better every day because how tight knit we all are in this group. Um, you know, it's a pretty neat thing, Dave, when um, you get a text from the CEO of the company wanting to know about your well-being after this natural disaster. Chase Anderson has an open door policy to all of our anglers. It is unprecedented. Bruce Aikens had that as well. It was really great working with Bruce. He's now retired. I give Bruce a hard time all the time. We've got friends in Scottsboro, Alabama together. So we, we give each other a hard time, but it was really neat to be able to get to the, the front door there and offer a grievance, offer a comment that might make it better. And uh, anytime you have communication going back and forth, forth and back with your anglers and management, we can get things accomplished and, we, and we're moving in that way. I feel better about this next season. Um, I'm really excited. I just hope we don't get bad weather in Florida. I hope we have another one of those big giant fish catches like we had in 19 at the St. John's. I watched that rerun the other day. and I still come in third in that tournament every time. <laughs> I, every time it's third place. But uh, we've got some exciting places to go, and, and I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to, a, to another year on the Bassmaster Elite Series trail. You hear people say things like, the rookies today are so much more honed and skilled and polished. And Do you believe that? I mean, look at, and not just you specifically, but your rookie class, the guys who started at the same time as you, and how prepared they were versus a rookie class coming into the Elite Series this year. Well, when I started, I was 26 years old. I was working on a master's degree. Um, I had fished locally, regionally, and semi-nationally. Um, I had not had any experience in grass fishing, Dave. I didn't know what milfoil was. I didn't know what hydrilla was. I never bed fished here on Kentucky Lake. We couldn't because the waters were too turbid to do that. Yeah. So those are techniques that I learned along the way once I started traveling. The high school and college kids, these kids are traveling so much more and they get so many experiences. I was a high school and college tennis player too. So I learned to hit that backhand and that forehand. That's muscle memory. When that muscle, you teach that muscle to hit that backhand, you do it every time the same way. Well, these kids are getting muscle memory between their shoulders by going to all these places. They're getting exposed to situations that they're not used to. Well, they take that and roll it to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. Well, they're doing that at 14, 15, 16, 18, 20 years old, and I had to do it at 26. So they're a minimum of eight years ahead of me when they come into the sport. The other thing is, is technology has allowed the passage of information to come faster. I waited 
a month to get my Bassmaster magazine and would devour every word of it and take that technique and go. If you and I go to Simcoe when I ever get that invite, uh-huh. we can film this and uh, put it on Instagram or Facebook Live or whatever. And if we come up with some crazy technique that's been completely unique to just our minds, well, there's a kid watching that that can take that to his waters within an hour and start working on that technique. So it's all sped up. You know, my heroes were Rick Clay, still my hero, Rick Clun. I mean, I told him the other day, I said, do you know how big a hero you are to me? And he said, no. Of course, you know how Rick is. Yeah. Why? I said, well, you married a beautiful woman named Melissa, so I had to, too. He got a big (laughs) kick out of that. But Rick has always been one of the anglers that has taught so many of my age group uh, uh, about seasonal patterns, how to follow fish into the bay, out of the bay, and fish the seasonal pattern for whatever. Larry Nixon, another great friend of mine that always hassled me when we ran the same boats and the same motors, Um, you know, Guido... Bless his, bless his heart. Guido was so good to all of us that uh, he understood um, how to teach people uh, in his own way. So those guys taught me, and hopefully all of the video stuff that I've done, all of the Bassmaster University stuff that I've done over the years has taught others, and now it just goes so much faster. They can assimilate information, and that's what these young kids have done. And um, – there's one thing about an effective bass fisherman. We are high level problem solvers. Doesn't matter if you've got a PhD, doesn't matter if you've got a high school education. We process how to figure out the problem of catching our next fish faster. And that's what we all share as, as, as bass anglers and fishermen. We all figure that problem out and how to solve it. And it's about keying on that fish. And these kids are darn good at it. Dave, darn good at it. One of the questions that I've asked a lot of guests here, and, I, and I'm interested to see your opinion on it. Um, if you take the skill of professional angling, the skill of doing well in tournaments, and I'm not talking about the sponsor side of it or anything, I'm talking about competing on the elite series, and I give you three different characteristics. One of them is your knowledge. So your knowledge of the particular body of water you're fishing. The other one is technical your ability to cast properly your ability to work the bait and the third quality is your mental outlook your your attitude how you approach things if the total has to be a hundred percent i want you to take those three characteristics and tell me what percentage makes up the perfect pro angler i think attitude is a very high portion of that so i'm going to give attitude at least 40 percent because if I wake up and I feel cruddy, I generally have a cruddy day. Yeah. Um, so I think attitude of, of just being positive, waking up and seeing that sun come up, watching a wood duck get up off the water, and looking over there on the bank and there's a giant buck over there, that contributes to my attitude. So I'm in my workspace that I like. Um, the technical part of actually being able to make the presentation, skip that jig under there or, uh, whatever it is, um, I think we're all very technically capable. Uh, some slightly more than others, um, but as a darn whole, every elite angler has those. So I'm only going to give that about 20%. Um, and what was the first one that you mentioned, Dave? Uh, knowledge. Knowledge of the knowledge, body of water. Um, 
I'm going to give attitude 60% and I'm only, I'm going to move that up some and knowledge of the water is 20 to 25% of it. Um, as I stated about what Clun has preached all of his life, seasonal pattern is by far more important than a specific spot right there. Now, not many elite tournaments get one on a spot. Yeah. They don't. And not many tournaments get won by the closest local angler to the destination we're going. So I think that that information um, is, is not as important as knowing your quarry, knowing your seasonal pattern, because I, every, it's, it's a cliche. A bass is a bass is a bass, whether you're in Florida or New York, it doesn't matter. They act the same. Um, yes, they do. But there are some little nuances between them that over time you learn um, uh, that that's really important. Here, here, here's one I'm going to toss to you, Dave. One of the things that I always do, and I will be doing this when we go to the St. John's and the Harris chain, when I go to Florida, I get on the, get in the boat, I grab a rod and I make the first cast with a plastic worm or a cutter worm or whatever kind of space monkey or whatever I'm throwing. And when it hits the bottom, I have to make myself halt for 10 seconds and leave that bait on the bottom. Now, how hard is that to do? Because you know, we chunker, we winder, we chunker back. But a Florida bass is a is a fish that um, is uh, very curious by nature and very cautious by nature. If it's not quite right, he'll swim off and he won't eat it. So if I let it throw that worm over and I let it lay 10 or 15 seconds uh, before I start moving it, Throughout the day, I will end up getting two to five bites that I wouldn't have got had I thrown it over and started working the worm like I normally do. So that's one of the things that time has taught me. And, and those are the good things about having all this gray hair um, that, that, that helps me a little more sometimes than that youthful enthusiasm. What do you think this Mark Menendez, if, if we had the budget in some machine that could send you back to 26-year-old Mark Menendez starting his career, what advice would you give him? Sit down, oh. shut up, and slow down. Um, you know, we as anglers, and in and, and, and the situation, this is a high-stakes game. It is yeah. a very expensive thing to do. It costs a lot of money. And those pressures, and pressures from being away from home, those things ramp us up, make us fish faster. And um, one of the words, or a couple of the words, that I would take and throw away is, I got to. I don't got to do nothing or I have to do this. I have to do this. And I would absolutely take the cliche of swing for the fences out of our, out of our language. Um, it never happens. It happens occasionally, but um, I got to, I got to catch 20 pounds today. I got to, I, I have to, I have to catch a big one today. That, that, that ex exciting, you just get so worked up in a frenzy. If I could take that back and just kind of be cool hand Luke, like I, like, age teaches us all to do there's no telling how many more fish i would have caught and there's no telling man how many fish dave that i jumped up and left and ran off and ran over the top of them at 70 mile an hour in the whole nine yards um but sit down shut up and slow down would be the three things i'd tell that 26 year old kid that was so excited uh, that i mean that that advice probably works for no matter what line of work you're in most 26 year old kids should sit down shut up and, and listen a little bit um i know uh, i know one that's a lot older that should do that more often and it's me um 
Mark, one of the things that I really appreciate about you and and you were talking about Rick and I thought about it when you said it and, and I feel the exact same way about you. Uh, you hear all sorts of people talk about, you know, you meet this person that you saw on TV, this person you grew up watching and it, don't meet your heroes, they say, because it'll ruin things. But every once in a while, there's the very odd person and I consider Rick Clun to be one of those and of course you to be one of those. Every once in a while, you meet your heroes, and they keep impressing you more and more. And I will tell you, you today and Rick Clunt, you're more of a hero to me today than, than, than you were when I watched you on TV just because of how I see how you guys care about the sport. And it's, I don't, everybody cares about winning. Everybody wants to win at the end of the day, how many you won. That's what we all talk about. But ultimately, you guys care more about the sport in a lot of situations than you care about winning, it seems. That's absolutely true, Dave. You know, my goals when I started this journey, my goals was not to catch the biggest bass ever caught in the Elite Series, was not to win the most money, not to win the most angler of the years, but the goals were, number one, to be recognized as a credible angler. That was, that was the number one. Selfishly, number two, was get to go fish in a Bassmasters Classic. And number three was hopefully be lucky enough to be a, be a professional angler. And those, those goals have been accomplished. And along the way, you meet people. And I met Rick in 1985 at Murray State University at a seminar he was doing in a rodeo arena. And nobody there hardly knew who he was, but I did. Yeah. Dave, I had him to myself for three days and I pestered him about everything about fishing to the point I'm sure he was ready to slap me. I had a problem on the elite series in 95 at a wheeler tournament. There was one boat that consistently showed up in my area. I was up and down. I would catch him one day and I wouldn't catch him one day, but the day I would catch him the day after that boat would be in my area. Now, things happen. I agree that happened. You know, boats come in, boats go, anglers come in your area and stuff. But this started becoming a pattern after about the fourth or fifth time on the day after I'd called him up here. Here's this guy the next day. I didn't know what to do. So we had a fog delay. And I said, uh, there's Clun. And I went straight to him. And I said, Rick, I need your advice. He didn't know me well. He knew I'd been out there about four years. And I immediately had his attention. I told him the problem and he says, have you set the precedent with the tournament director? Have you set the precedent with the anger? I said, no, Rick, I'm just, I am just so upset by this. I, I, I want to go fight the guy. I want to go whip the guy's butt. And so he goes on this whole speech about it. And 10 minutes into the speech, I look and that boat is parked next to Rick's boat in the fog delay. I never saw the guy around me the rest of his career, ever. <laughs> the rest so of his career. He was on to something, but we hand, it handled it right. So I just have been endeared, Rick, for, for taking the time to try to mentor a young person. So when we're on the stage in 19 at uh, the St. John's, Rick was one of the first of the 10 to weigh in because he just slid into the top 10. He catches this giant sack of fish. Um, and... I get up there and I catch almost 26 pounds and I don't knock him off the stand. So after you're done with me, I turn to reach and shake his hand. He hits my hand. He won't shake my hand. 
He says, I'm not going to shake your hand, Mark, but I will hug you. So we embrace. And uh, that, that's a true story. That right there. When you have the acceptance, you can tell. When you have the acceptance of your hero, you've been everything you want to be on as far as an angler. That I will cherish. Rick's ultra dry sense of humor. Oh, good Lord, is it great. He is so funny. It is dry as the Mojave Desert. Um, he's just so, there's so many, the onion layer peels. And you find this sensitive individual inside that. But he's so strong and so hard as a competitor. He's made us all better. He, he really has. And, and, and I think you have too, Mark. I really do. I, I think you have in a big, big way. And I think you continue to make it better in different ways too. You know what I mean? Like the, the, the whole conservation approach, that makes it better for people that you don't even meet. You know what I mean? That you may never meet. It, it, you know, it makes it better down the road. And um, I think our sport's pretty lucky. You know, you said at the beginning how – you know, anglers all kind of have a good heart. And, and I think that's because they learned from people like yourself and from people like Rick Clun and, and, uh, you guys, you guys blazed the trail and, uh, I thank you for everything you've done for this sport. Well, I appreciate it, Dave. And I, I've had multiple times in my life where I needed help and the fishing family was there. Um, and I, and I will always be grateful for that. So, um, if everyone would just pay it forward, just a, just a, just a skosh, just a, just a penny, just a nickel, whatever it is, if everybody would just pay it forward to the next generation, think how much better this place would be. And, um, I'm just finding that's what I try to like to do is try to make it better in some way that maybe not everybody's thinking about. And, um, and the invasive species thing has hit us, hit, hit my area so hard here. And um, I thought with what visibility I had and what credibility, what little credibility I have, I could push that out there and, and, and try to make a difference. And, and we're, we're making a difference. Is it cured? No. Are we making it, are we making it known that this is a real problem? I've been years. I mean, I, I, I love Trip Weldon to death, but they, I'd like to know how many times I've come to him and said, Trip, if we don't get on board now, we're not going to have a tournament uh, organization because uh, these dang things will take over everything. And uh, we finally got that platform moving and started and that voice is being heard. And, um, so for that, uh, maybe I have been a little bit successful at it, but I'm not going to stop now. Don't. Don't stop, but, but, but this podcast has to stop. And I think the perfect way to end this podcast is this way. Mark Menendez, would you please come stay at my house next year so we could go fish Lake Simcoe together? It only took two shameless asks to get that. <laughs> Absolutely, I will, Dave. I, 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 we'll go fishing in a creek somewhere. I don't care. I want to spend more time with you fishing. And thank you for all you do on the autism front. Uh, thank you for what you do as the, vis the visible face of my league and for sportsmen everywhere. Um, laughs and positivity and energy. We all need more of that in the world, and you certainly do that in our world. So I will come fishing. 
I will bait your hook. I will even run the trolling motor if you want me to, you know? So um, yes, we will, uh, we'll stop that, that line of questioning right now, but I'd absolutely love to come up there and fish with you sometime. I want to come when it's cold when we don't catch, but two or three, but they're like this big. All right. All right. Or whenever you say the best time to come is. We, we, we will make this happen for sure. For sure. I look forward to it. And uh, you're not running the trolling motor, but you can bait my hook if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Menendez, you are one of a kind. And I thank you very much for being on our silly little podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Dave. I look forward to seeing you in sunny Florida. Wear your sunscreen because I know you're going to be inside from all that snow that you've got coming your way <laughs> and cold. So uh, we'll keep it uh, keep our feet on the ground here. And I'm going to go catch some of these Kentucky Lake smallmouth tomorrow. So uh, I'll let you know how it goes. Send me pictures. Make me jealous. I will. Well, did, did I lie? No, I didn't lie. You, you listen to Mark Menendez talk. And you want to do more. You want to contribute, make the world a better place because he truly does that. And um, with that in mind, as we talked, so, so many people affected by the devastation of the storms last week. So as Mark said, just do what you can to help out. We'll put some links down below where you can donate. And as I said, I will donate $1 for every share like subscription that this video gets so make sure to like share subscribe do all that stuff and i'll donate a bunch of money you donate a bunch of money and all of us will try and make things a little easier on some people that have to deal with way too much and um is it enough no it's not enough but as mark menendez said do what you can and uh and that's all all we can do so um This is the awkward part where I don't know how to say goodbye, so I'll just say have a great week, make the world a better place, enjoy being, and goodbye. Thanks for watching. Please like, comment, and subscribe. Because Bob Cobb of the Bassmasters told you to. You hear?